1: We are breaking down all aspects of Yankee baseball.
2: This is the Bronx Pinstripe Show with your hosts Andrew Rotondi and Scott Reinen.
1: Let's go. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Bronx Pinstripe Show, episode 138. Scott, did you have a better weekend than the Yankees did? Because I hope so. I did. I did. I'll, I have to turn up my
2: um, my volume on my headphones because from the last show, I had to turn it way down. If you remember, it was uh, a little loud on the last one, so I can turn these back up real quick. Um, we didn't talk. What?
1: We didn't get to talk much.
2: No, no, no. That's why I got to turn it, turn the mi- microphone back up so I can hear you. Um, yes, I had a great weekend. I had a, I had a phenomenal weekend. And to tell you the truth, everything was going very well for... For everybody, uh, you know, from Saturday to Sunday, and then Sunday with the with the first win, and then Tanaka was just. We'll get into that later, and I know, and I know you're going to get into that. But yes, I had a good weekend. Um, I, I kind of have an announcement for everybody on the show. Whether you follow me on social media, you may see this, you may have seen it or not. But uh, my wife is pregnant. We are having a baby boy in August, so there's big to do around that. And uh, she had her baby shower this weekend, so we had a lot of family around and obviously Mother's Day and all this stuff. And my goodness, if you didn't think this kid would have Yankee stuff already, because one, I'm probably going to make some like baby stuff now because that's just what's going to happen. And and uh, and obviously, you know, Bronx pinstripes. I'm pretty sure this kid's going to be decked out with gear. But uh, I think every person that went to that shower brought something uh, for the New York Yankees. So the kid doesn't really have a choice at this point.
1: I've always thought in my mind that if I do ever have a son, what happens if he becomes a Red Sox fan? That's like my worst nightmare. Have you ever thought about that?
2: No, no, because I don't think it could ever happen. It really, I mean, you would, your son would have to hate you and then you get bigger problems, right? Because there's no possible way that could happen.
1: So the only way it happens, like in the case of my dad's family, who he has six brothers and sisters, my dad's dad was a huge Yankees fan. My dad's mom was actually and still is a very big Red Sox fan. So the kids are split: four Yankee fans, three Red Sox fans.
2: Yeah, so I can see that. I can see how the sibling rivalry gets in the middle of it, and and then there's a, a split at some point. But I don't know with with the way that what we do, <laughs> we have a a, a a show that we do twice <laughs> a week, and we watch practically every game. Yeah, there's there's going to be some ground rules, and I just I think we're a little too close to the action for for that to occur. So. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a good weekend. Uh, unfortunately, um, our boy, our our number one pitcher, could not could you know close out the close out the weekend. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, all, all in all, it was a good good stuff.
1: Well, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there, and happy birthday to my mom, who uh, was also celebrating her birthday yesterday. Oh, cool. uh, she. Yeah, she, her birthday is always around Mother's Day and my birthday is always around Father's Day. So she says that's payback because once I am I am a father, I will no longer have two celebrations. It will just be one celebration like she has. Yeah, you get gypped on the gifts. <laughs> exactly. Um, 25% off in the fan shop this week. Use code Jeter as if there would be any other code. We're going to get into all the ceremony uh, talk, but use code Jeter for 25% off in the fan shop. You can get your Captain of New York shirt, which uh, I tweeted out a picture of. That's uh, definitely my favorite Jeter shirt.
2: Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, uh, I should have probably tweeted that out way more this weekend, but I didn't. The uh, that, that shirt is available in the fan shop. It is a sweet shirt. I, um, I, I'm proud of that one. The, uh, the other big news is obviously June 10th. You guys know about this because we've been talking about it at nauseum. For a good reason, because there are, again, over 200 tickets sold. We are approaching it quickly. If you have purchased tickets, um, you're getting an email from me this week about the details of how we're going to distribute tickets and t-shirts and all that stuff and kind of what to expect from the event a little bit more. Um, but yeah, definitely get your tickets. If, you, if you're still thinking about it, if you have a group you're assembling, get in there because there is going to be a cutoff. We'll probably announce that cutoff on the Thursday show for when you can get The t-shirts because obviously they have to go into print and then they will be distributed at billy's so um definitely get them in uh soon the cutoff will probably be in the next couple weeks
1: yeah and you have to come to billy's if you want your ticket not that you would skip that because that might be the the best part of the event when we're all hanging out at billy's with the open bar but you got to come to billy's if you want to get your ticket into the game all right the jeter ceremonies what what was your what was your opinion this on this whole week, Jeter Week? Do you think we needed a whole week?
2: Well, that's irrelevant. I mean, it was going to happen no matter what. I mean, as soon as the Yes Network and Yankees started just pushing the fact that it was Jeter Week, I mean, they announced that weeks and weeks and weeks ago that this thing was coming. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, who doesn't like the, the a trip down memory lane when it's a really good trip? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's something that it doesn't get old ever. These videos that I keep watching, I mean, I probably watched that video that the Yankees put out about his last game like 10 times. I, and I don't know <laughs> why. I just kind of had it on a couple of times. I like hearing people's you know thoughts about the day and what they were doing. I don't know. So, no, I, honestly, it doesn't get old for me. I'm sure that people who are not Yankee fans and it was all over like ESPN and some of these other ones were just yeah. rolling their eyes for an entire week.
1: Because no other player in the last 30 years that's retired has gotten the type of farewell ceremony that Jeter got and also a whole week dedicated to him. And it even though it was Yankees driven, I think baseball was on board that this was Jeter week.
2: Oh no doubt, because Derek Jeter is isn't was the face of the of the, uh, the Yankees and baseball for a he long time. He was the time. face of baseball. Yeah, for a yeah, long time. I would say
1: he was the face of baseball from, uh, at least like the two thousands, the aughts.
2: Yeah, well, and and the the reason is because they were going through some some strenuous times to say it, to <laughs> say it uh you know more matter of fact, but the, right. he, he was the he was the guy who was the poster child of how to do everything right, and yeah, he, he was, was a good winner. Boy. Yeah, so it was he was the perfect poster child.
1: Do you know what stuck out to me this week is that I mean. Imagine if we the season was going the way a lot of people thought, where the Yankees were maybe hovering around 500 and that would have been good. Then Jeter Week would have been, I think, even bigger. People would have really grasped on to celebrating Jeter and looking back on the memories because what was happening today is not as exciting. But the opposite happened. And the, the team was playing tremendously going into that week. They had just swept the Cubs. So it was kind of like, for me... A moment of celebration of an end of an era, but a new one is already underway, which is really, really cool.
2: Yeah, no. And I, I disagree a little bit in the sense that I think that I think that actually helped the, the ceremony and the buzz in the stadium and getting everybody there and just having the, you know, the, the emotions in the stadium because they knew You know, when you're looking at this team and you see the – everybody obviously is already talking about the comparisons in character with Judge and and Jeter and, you know, Judge walks out Jeter's grandmother and, like, there was all these – I I
1: thought Judge walked out Zimmer's
2: wife. You're right. It was Zimmer's wife. My bad. Um, But they were were all of these emotions, I think – and I, I think people were remembering what it felt like then when we were winning because they, they have a little bit of a taste of it now and they see the new era. So I, I actually think it was was helpful with the whole ceremony. And I think the, there's almost a passing of the torch kind of with, uh, you know, not to one person per se, but to a group of guys. And I think I think Jeter likes that too.
1: Yeah, Jeter, Jeter might like that, but don't you get the sense that he does not like all the attention? He seems a little uncomfortable with it all. And I think that's perfectly natural. I I would be extremely uncomfortable with all that kind of attention too. But just watching him, he's always kind of fidgety when the camera is really close to him. He 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 does the famously... fake the fake clearing of the of the of his voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat>
2: yeah. Before it's such a nervous. It's like my mom always said I had a nervous yawn or like dogs have nervous yawns when they get in trouble. He does yeah. like the the fake cough.
1: When you know you did something wrong, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it, when he used to ha- when he was playing he, and he had his hat on, he used to always adjust his hat. And I and I always rem- I go back to the point when him and Pettit went out to the mound to take out Mariano the last time, and you could see Mariano crying and Pettit was getting emotional. Gino was uncomfortable. He's like, "No, nah, I'm a guy. I'm not crying. I'm you're crying. I'm not crying." And he adjusted his hat and kind of stepped back because I think he's kind of uncomfortable with all that stuff, and it's perfectly normal.
2: Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, he's he's always he's always been, he's worn that. I mean, he's said that he's not, he doesn't like those moments. He likes the the moments when everybody's watching him and and when he's the pressure guy on the field. But when it comes to the off the field stuff, he's never, he's always, he's always been like a team guy. He's always been a, you know, let's win, win, win. It's not about me. It's about the team. That's always been his thing. And he, you know, if you listen to a lot of the interviews, he, he would take pride in how he would keep his emotions in check because I think it helped him on the field. So you know, you know he was always I think one of the knocks for Jeter. Obviously, he didn't talk to the media very often. He wasn't very forthcoming about his life off the field during his playing years, but I think that was part of his strength as well because he was able to keep that in check. And I felt like he needed to keep that off off the field stuff in check as well. That was part of his persona. So, um, yeah, it's not it's,
1: that I, yeah, not that I expected it, but had he broke down and, and cried at all or got tearful at all during the day or during the speech. Do you think that would have helped or hurt his sort of uh, uh, persona and and place with all the Yankee fans?
2: Nothing can hurt the, the, the nothing can hurt the image of Derek Jeter right now. Nothing, it's impossible. Like, You're probably
1: right. Yeah, yeah he could he could have stu- stood up the city of New York and not shown up to his own ceremonies, and we would still love him. Yeah,
2: there would have been a real a good reason for it. <laughs> but no, <laughs> if he if he cried. It would have been, people would have been, like, every woman in the tri-state area and across the globe would have melted.
1: Right. Uh, His speech was uh, two minutes, 58 seconds. I timed it on my phone. Nerd! No one, (laughs) because I knew, because I tweeted out before over-under on Jeter's speech, and and a lot of people said three minutes, and I agreed, because Jeter didn't write anything down. I was was actually driving home uh, from my parents' house during the game, and he was on with John and Susan, and talking about how he doesn't like to write things down. He didn't write anything down for the 2008 closing of Yankee Stadium speech. And that is, I think, his best ever speech.
2: Yeah. You know, first of all, I I don't think he writes things down, but I definitely think he prepares and at least talks goes through talking points in his head for for stuff like this. But he, I, I thought he delivered a good, heartfelt speech. I mean, it's pretty much par for the course for what Jeter did. I don't think there was anything groundbreaking in there. I think it's uh, stuff we've kind of heard before. Um, but you know, he gives the respect to the Steinbrenner family as he always does. I mean, every single time that guy has a microphone and he's honored. The first thing he always says is thank you to the Steinbrenner family and and George Steinbrenner. It's, he does it every time. They wrote his $200 million worth of checks. Yeah, but you don't see many guys doing them. It's not, it's not every, every athlete doesn't do that. The guy obviously has a lot of respect for the game, the organization, the people that came before him. Um, I thought it was interesting hearing the, the the people that he was admiring and looking up to. I saw on the, uh, it was Carl Ravitch, I think, was doing the interview on ESPN. And he was talking about the days when Jeter grew up as a Yankee fan and would spend his summers in New Jersey and how you know, Dave Winfield was his guy. That was his guy mm-hmm. that he would look up to. And Willie Randolph, and uh, he, he slid mattingly in there. I felt like he had he kind of had to um, put it in there. But yeah, he was always talking about learning from those, those teams. I'm like... Well, you learned what not to do when you watch the, the mid to late 80s Yankees. But yeah, I thought that well, stuff course, was interesting.
1: Of course, Jeter is going to be a big Mattingly fan now. Yeah, of course. He's yeah. going to be his new boss.
2: I know. It's so funny.
1: Uh, yeah, he he's always said that Winfield was his guy. And it's so funny because you just mentioned how he always thanks Steinbrenner. He always thanks the boss. In the 80s, the boss called Winfield Mr. May. And then fast forward to the 90s, and Jeter has a great relationship with George Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner, if he gives out a nickname, he's calling Paul O'Neill the Warrior. He's not calling anybody Mr. May anymore. So it's quite a different scene. I think if Jeter played and Steinbrenner was like he was with Winfield, maybe he wouldn't be thanking him so often.
2: Yeah, probably true. He was definitely a different dude. And I think that, you know, Jeter was so young when Mattingly was, or when uh, Winfield was playing. I mean, he was, uh, you know, under 10 years old, or around 10 years old, I bet. And uh, so he didn't really see the uh, the probably the relationship with him, with with uh, the boss and and Winfield and all those 80s teams. But, you know, it's interesting to see the fan side of him actually like come back and and him talking about his summers and how everybody was a big Yankee fan. And that was what he lived and breathed was the Yankees. So I think it's interesting when you when you take all the baseball out of it and you see young Derek Jeter talking about being a Yankee fan.
1: Yeah. You know what I thought when Mariano walked out on the field is that I think he could still close.
2: Yeah. I said the same
1: thing about Paul O'Neill though too, because he's jacked. Uh, they're both in game shapes. But yeah, yeah, like you, you look at Bernie Williams and he's he's let his body go, and it's understandable. But yeah. Bernie or excuse me, uh O'Neill and Mariano could still play, and O'Neal hasn't played since oh one. Right. Pettit and still looks like he go the out there gym. and throw
2: too. i I'm not gonna lie. I mean he looks he's never been like the most you know, physically in shape, dude, in the world, but he looks, uh, he looks maybe two
1: thousand two, two thousand three. He was when Roger Clemens was walking around the ballpark.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> he could go out there. He could go out there and compete with CC right now. Let's let's get that straight.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I also thought it was funny that because you know how Michael Kay and uh, Sterling do the little intros, and yeah. they have. Now that I've seen 50 ceremonies and 50 old timers days and all this stuff, they have the same little two sentence intro for all the players that they just recycle every season. I think they need to get a writer in there to refresh some of those.
2: Yeah, there was a bunch of there, there was definitely a, a lot of recycled stuff. It felt like, you know, a very similar ceremony to all the other ones. The one the one noticeable difference was and this was I, I thought very odd to me. So they have uh, the Friars, the Friars Club Blazers now, right? They have the Blazers for Monument on Park on sale
1: for uh, n- nine ninety nine ninety nine
2: <laughs> exactly, with your own custom patch that you can put your own name on it if you want on the back. And the but the interesting thing was, I don't know if you caught this, was that the idea came from Carlos Beltran. Like, yeah, what I did catch that. What the,
1: what the hell? What, what?
2: That's so random. Why did uh, Carlos Beltran? It's a little
1: desperate. It's a little desperate by Beltran just yeah. wanting to be in Monument Park.
2: He's like, ooh, 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 I want to jacket can we make some blazers for monument park like sorry carlos maybe a couple of years ago that you had a chance I, I think um i think with all the media scrutiny about about giving everybody a a plaque i don't think you're getting anybody but no i thought that was very strange and how it was his idea and, and talking about uh getting these jackets so
1: belgian had a big part in this and it's weird because he was only there for two and a half seasons
2: right yeah, I didn't really understand that to tell you the truth.
1: I, first of all, I didn't know Beltrán
2: and Jeter were so close. I didn't know that. Well, they and, only
1: played the one year together, 2014, yeah, right?
2: And Beltrán was all over the damn place before that, so, you know, why well, Maybe was, they
1: were friendly when he was in the with the Mets and they lived in the same town, I don't know. I don't know.
2: But they uh but yeah, the whole the whole Beltrán and you know, involvement with that and the fact that he came up with the jacket idea was just strange to me. It was
1: weird. I don't know if you also caught this, but on the radio broadcast, Susan said everybody who was here, everyone who was supposed to be at the ceremony, was at the ceremony. <laughs> was that a Where slight? <laughs> no, A Rod. Well, of course, A Rod's not going to be there.
2: Why would he be there? That would be just a, a a controversial, you know, invitee. That's that's definitely. He's not in the club. He's not in those in that in the cool guy club. Look at he's those guys that were out Jesus there. Those. Club. Yeah. No. Hell. No. He's not. The guys that were out there, the ones that were, were, that were on his bachelor party, the ones that you see in those golf photos. I mean, Gerald Williams is his boy. He's been his boy from the beginning, right. um, and and then you get the you know a bunch of the the '90s guys who are um, who are just always attached to him and go to his events and such. A Rod is never going to be that guy. Well,
1: it's just funny because A Rod is still a part of the organization. Hell, he's still on the payroll. Uh, well, he, he's, yeah, he's not stepping foot on the same field as Jeter anymore.
2: No. And guess who's never going to be there when A-Rod, if A-Rod gets any kind of recognition in Yankee Stadium.
1: Jeter ain't showing up. Oh, Jeter's not showing Jeter. up to the stadium for a long time.
2: Yeah, you're right. I think this is the he'll, – he'll come in old-timer's day in like 15, 20 years.
1: Yeah, he'll be there when he's like 55 years old. Yeah. It, the The whole Jeter-A-Rod relationship is, is honestly really fascinating because – and a lot of people know this, but they were – Best friends back in the '90s. They stayed at each other's houses when Seattle would play the Yankees, and vice versa when, uh, when the Yankees would go to Seattle. And you remember that famous brawl? I think it was 1999. And uh, O'Neill, it was O'Neill who got hit, kind of started the brawl. And Jeter and Ayrod are just standing off on the sideline, just kind of watching it, laughing because they're not going to fight each other.
2: So after the after the awkward interview they did on on CNBC or wherever it was, I'm sure everybody's seen it by now. You, you, uh, Rich, and I were were kind of talking behind the scenes about the relationship. So we were we were talking about putting out a podcast about just the Jeter A. Rod relationship, kind of just a, a fun one on the side. So if if you're listening and you want to hear that, let us know because we're we're still thinking about putting one together about just a just like a you know drinks and beers and let's talk about this this complicated relationship that has so many different. Soap opera angles.
1: Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's multi layered. There's like five layers to it. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. You could have a whole book on it. You could have a 10 hour podcast on it. But yeah, tweet us if you want to hear that. What did you think of Jeter's suit? Was he trying to go with the, with the Yankee blue suit? It was, it was interesting. It
2: wasn't Yankee blue, though. It was, it was, it was, I would call it more of a cobalt blue. It was a little bit of a lighter shade. So the first time I saw it when he was out in center field and they showed him and, First of all, I thought he had the buttons all the way up on the shirt cuz I guess the it was closed and like the, the wind was blowing and he had this then he had the the uh the vest on underneath. I was like, "What the hell is he wearing?" It almost looked like Austin Powers for a second. The angle <laughs> I saw was like almost that blue, 70s ish. Yeah, it was uh it was an interesting blue. I don't know. I, I don't know if I would have uh I don't know
1: if I would have made that choice. He probably should have gone with some Mack Weldon gear. Probably should have. It would have been more comfortable. Because Mack Weldon sells the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies. And sweatpants that you'll ever wear. I got a pair of their sweatpants, and they certainly are comfortable. I'm wearing them right now as we're doing this podcast on Monday morning, very early. I rolled out of bed after celebrating Mother's Day weekend, and I'm in my Mac Weldon's doing the podcast. They're daily wear. Uh, they're a daily wear clothing company, and they want you to just be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will send you a refund, no questions asked. They also have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial. It's a big word. That, that means they don't smell. So if you're out at the ballpark this summer and it's 95 degrees like it was for us last summer, you're not going to stink. You can go to Billy's afterwards and you can uh, grind up on some hotties and <laughs> they're not going to care that you're smelling like the bleachers. Um, for 20% off at MacWeldon, go to macweldon.com and use the promo code Bronx. Again, if you want 20% off at MacWeldon Weldon, and use the promo code Bronx. All right. We kind of were going to use this Houston series as a benchmarking series because Houston rolled into, into the Bronx with a, the best record in the American League after the four-game series in which the Yankees lost three. And you could kind of tell that was coming because it's really hard to sweep a doubleheader. Do you feel any differently about this team?
2: No, because I really don't. I, first of all, I feel I, I think my my uh, my thoughts about Houston are almost reaffirmed. I think they are filthy. I think that team is the pitching's better than I thought it was. The uh, the offense is as good as as I thought it was. I mean, I, I think Altuve hasn't even really gotten going yet, and they have a lot of really good middle of the order guys. So that team is impressive, and they're not going anywhere. I mean, they're going to be good for a long time, and especially this year as they continue to grow and gel as a team, that, that's a scary team to keep, a, keep your eye on. I think they're going to run away with that division um, at some point. But the uh, the Yankees, I mean, even when they were down, I still saw some fight in them. I mean, even when you're looking at yesterday's game, they came back and they scored, what, seven runs, um, came back in the ninth inning and made it interesting. They had the uh, the tying run up at the plate at one point with with Aaron Hicks. So, you know, I still think there's some fight in this team. Obviously, they're not going to they're not going to go out and just win every single game and every single series. There's going to be lulls. And I think that we found one. I mean, they, they found a, a really hot team that they ran into and there were a lot of other things going on this weekend. So, you know, maybe that was a distraction. Maybe it wasn't. But I don't, I don't really feel any different.
1: Well, the offense, even though they they got shut down by Keuchel once again, I mean, they did score a bunch of runs on Sunday. You expect if you put up 11 in game one and seven in game two, when you have Severino and Tanaka going, you're going to sweep that doubleheader. Yeah. So the pitching is really the thing that failed them this weekend. Uh, but going back to Thursday night, I mean, Pineda versus Keuchel. Pineda has been the Yankees' best pitcher, so you'd think that was going to be a good pitching matchup, and it was. I mean, Pineda made one mistake to Correa in the first inning; he left a ball up, and Correa took him for a two-run homer. Correa owns Pineda and owns the Yankees. That was his fourth home run in six games at Yankee Stadium to that point on Thursday. So maybe stop pitching to Carlos Correa.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's as good as advertised. The kid's the kid's a good ball player. He loves. I think he especially gets up for these Yankees series in the Bronx. Um, I, I, he definitely likes the lights. I mean, the kid likes the attention. He likes being in the fresher spot. So the, the fact that, that he took uh, Pineda deep in that play, you know, doesn't surprise me. The fact that he had a good series doesn't surprise me. Um, but Pineda pitched well. I mean, overall, that, you're right. Like, it, that was his big mistake, but he pitched well again. I mean, this guy is, has been extremely impressive
1: this year. Unfortunately, when the Yankees are going up against Keuchel, their starting pitcher has to be perfect. Yes. Panetta wasn't perfect, but Keiko wasn't perfect either. The Yankees had a ton of runners on base in the fifth and sixth inning. They just couldn't hit with runners in the scoring position. I mean, look at the fifth inning. The only reason the Yankees scored a run is because Ellsbury had a catcher's interference. Right. He's yeah. now one away from the all time major league lead. Pete Rose, right? So milestone alert. Yeah. <laughs> They're gonna have a ceremony when Jacoby Ellsbury breaks that record.
2: Potentially. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. I wonder yeah. if there's a roster bonus in there.
1: So they only score on the catcher's interference, and then the sixth inning they have first and third, nobody out, and Judge, Headley, and DD all struck out. So, I, I someone actually a listener at uh, MP Kalina tweeted me this that the Yankees are second to last in baseball with seven point eight eight runners left on base per game. Only the Cubs are worse.
2: Yeah, that's not good. I mean, that's I think that's the the Achilles heel that we've been talking about was that you know are the Yankees you you kept bringing up you know are the Yankees too reliant on the home run ball, and I think. You know one of the one of the underlying statements behind that is well they're not scoring in other opportunities when they do have runners in scoring position, and we're seeing that we're seeing that as as becoming a problem if that ball's not leaving the park in in big times they're not they're not getting those big hits all the time with these runners in scoring position and uh it's becoming more of a problem than I thought it was earlier but um but yeah they're they're leaving a lot of runners on base and uh I, I think that right now we're seeing a bunch of guys. Kind of slumping. I think that we're we had we had a combined lineup of of uh, hot streaks early in the year, and I think we're seeing some guys fall back down to earth. And that's the direct the direct correlation with not scoring runs. And these guys, you know, slumping are the runners in scoring position, and those percentages being very high left on base.
1: Well, they are scoring runs if you look at just the run scored total this series. They actually did okay, but you're right; it's lopsided from two two big games on Sunday, but. Well, and it's going situational. Those, you
2: gotta, when you're looking at the situational. Situational, absolutely.
1: Yeah. 100%. And I was just going to get into that. Going back to that fifth and sixth inning against Keichel, You just get a sack fly in both of those situations, then we're not talking about Jacoby Ellsbury getting thrown out at the plate to end the game. Right.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there's a million things that could go differently in a game uh, across
1: the course of a game, but the... Just uh, in general, though, I mean, you got to... When, you have, when you're have when you going up against Keuchel, he's been one of the best pitchers in the league, and he's been basically Cy Young against you. Yeah. You can't waste those opportunities. Just manufacture a run. I'm not looking for a bases-clearing double. Just hit the ball 350 feet so that they can get a sack fly. And then, I mean, I do think it was the right decision for Joe Espada to send Ellsbury. I know a lot of people said it wasn't, but I have more confidence with Ellsbury scoring on maybe an errant throw then the Yankees coming up with a hit and runners in scoring position.
2: I agree. I you know there were a lot of people going back and forth on this on this topic. Like, how are you sending him? Who was on deck? It was Holiday, I think. that was on was coming up, right?
1: Holiday was coming up. Yeah. So
2: you know you like your chances there. Holiday's a clutch guy, He's a veteran guy who knows how to put the ball, bat on the ball, and chances are he could find some green. But at the same time, you're pressed for runs. You got Ellsbury, one of your fastest guys, one of your best base runners. Um, I'm sending him two, honestly. I, I don't know if he stumbled around third or if there was like a if he you know it was it was a good turn. I, I didn't see the actual turn or how he was running. It was
1: running. a perfect throw. It, it was a, a perfect throw ball. and it was the, a hard hit ball and a perfect throw. I mean
2: and the outfield was in. The outfield yeah. they they pinched in to cut off that run. I mean they did they they shifted the defense in order to do that. So, you know, maybe that's a different story depending on how far they're in that Espado should have seen how far they were in. And um that left fielder threw. He's he also kept uh, Ellsbury at first base if I'm if i remembering correctly yeah it was a ball down the line and he picked it up and uh, and and fired it and the guy's arm was evident and I don't I think a lot of Yankees fans are not very familiar with him but his arm was evident earlier in the game that uh, that he's got a that he's got some you know a quality arm and can throw on on target so it wasn't a big surprise I think when he threw him out.
1: It's it's a lose-lose situation for Espada because he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. If he I holds agree. Ellsbury there and Holiday strikes out or doesn't get the runner in, why the hell didn't you send Ellsbury? It only takes a perfect throw. Okay, we got a perfect throw. So it's just, it's just one of those things, I think, that Espada's in a no-win situation there. It kind of sucks to be a third-base coach because I feel like whenever you talk about a third-base coach, it's negative.
2: Well, yeah, and he's been he's been one of those guys that's easy to talk about. That's uh, on the negative side. He, he doesn't do very many good things. Again, you know my feelings. Willie Randolph should be the third base coach, best, best third base coach all time history. But um,
1: no. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, when when you got clutch guys up and down the lineup, it's easy, easy to be <laughs> third base coach. You just keep keep that windmill, arm moving.
2: Windmill, yeah. But the uh, well, that's the other thing. I maybe there's some expectations. Like they know that Willie's going to send them, so you better get on your ass. Like him might hold you up three quarters of the way down the line. I don't know. There's, there, I think there maybe that puts a little bit of hesitancy in the back of the uh, the runner when the third base coach isn't the most confident guy either. But the I, I'm sending them too. Honestly, I'm sending it. But I what I think is that two outs, base hit. Ellsbury's got to get a better secondary lead. He's got to make sure he's got to know that those infielders, are, the outfielders are in too. I think there's some of that on Ellsbury for you know for maybe not getting a best jump because you know the situation. You know you have to score. There's two outs. You're booking it you should be scoring on that play no matter what. I mean, I don't think that's on a spot. I think that's more on Ellsbury, to tell you the truth, and a perfect throw.
1: Yeah, yeah. Friday's game was boring, except Headley getting ejected from the game late. The Yankees did nothing against Lance McCullers. Um, the whole Headley situation, I was kind of, <laughs> because the Yankees were losing 5 to nothing at that point, I was kind of just half paying attention. Then all of a sudden, I see Adrian Johnson and Chase Headley screaming at one another, and I'm like, what the hell just happened? So here's what happened. Apparently... Uh, Hedley did get hit on his hand on the attempted bunt, but because he was bunting, it doesn't count as a hits batter. McCann asked him, hey, are you OK? And Headley, who's frustrated because he's got a 494 OPS in his last 17 games, said, no, it fucking hit me. Adrian Johnson, because maybe he has a big ego or something and he's a stupid umpire, just wants to insert himself into the situation and gets in Headley's face for no reason. I can't believe I'm defending Headley on this one. But I hate when umpires insert themselves in the story and make them this, make themselves the story. We should never talk about umpires. We should never talk about referees. They should just be there doing their job in the background. You're right. And he was
2: inappropriate, in my opinion, too, with his body language and what he did. I mean, he literally instigated that with Headley. Got up in his face, got chest to chest, and sort of pointing in his face. And Headley, we all know, is the nicest guy in the entire world, and it he was too nice there. Pissed. I mean, that was a that was an emphatic throw of the helmet down. That thing bounced, seemed like twenty feet in the air. And Headley was, uh, I think, shocked that he got tossed, shocked that he was, you know, that he was confronted by the umpire at that point when he's talking to McCann, who was his former freaking teammate. You know, so the whole thing was very strange. And all of a sudden, you see Headley going screaming, like bloody murder. At, uh, at the umpire. So it was a very strange situation.
1: Don't you agree, though, he's probably just frustrated that he's in a huge slump?
2: Absolutely. I think there was a lot of built up frustration there. I mean, I like that. I'm glad that Headley's frustrated and not just taking it as a matter of fact because, you know, later in the series, he came up with a big hit and had, uh, you know, ended up finishing the series pretty well.
1: Yeah, he had that big hit on the first game on Sunday, but um, that does not matter. He still went one for five on the day. So it doesn't mask the fact that he's, over his last 17 games, producing like he was last April, which was the worst player in baseball. Like, I I don't understand how he can go from a 400 batting average and hitting home runs and getting on base at like a 600 clip in the first two weeks of the season to crashing back down to the worst player in baseball. How how does that happen? Why is there no middle ground with this guy? Well, you should understand and you should
2: be used to something like this also because Brett Gardner's pretty much the same thing. I mean, the guy goes absolutely bonkers like he's doing currently. And he's going to come back on earth and he's going to look like a terrible baseball player offensively. And he's going to, it's going to happen because it always happens.
1: You don't think Gardner's slump was at all due to that collision with Ricky Weeks? I'm sure some of it was, but but when I look at
2: his history and when I see what the player does and when I, when I remember from just every year I'm watching him play, the guy is extremely streaky and he goes through terrible slumps. And then he goes through like amazing hot streaks. It's baseball. Some guys get streakier than others. Obviously Chase Headley is an extremely <laughs> say it. <laughs> yeah. I know you want to it's say baseball, it. It's baseball, Susan. Andrew, it's baseball. And obviously Chase Headley is a streaky guy. He's the John Starks of the New York Yankees right now. Throw it back to all my Knicks fans.
1: And are they gonna have to do something with him? I mean we talked about it all last year. They didn't do anything with him. So No,
2: he just got a huge hit, a huge game that was. Well was that a buys huge him another game. two months. It buys him forever. Yeah, he's he's there. He's going to be there for a long he's time. He's there for the rest of the time. For the rest like of your life. Retired for the rest of September your life. Number 12 he's there.
1: in Monument Park. <laughs> uh, Chapman to the DL kind of put a sour note on Sunday morning. The Yankees get rained out on Saturday. So you immediately know doubleheader on Sunday. It's tough to sweep doubleheaders, but that's what they have to do in order to at least tie the series. And then Chapman goes on the DL. I'm honestly not surprised. I woke up Saturday morning after he struggled on Friday night um, because he hadn't pitched in a week since that game on that last Sunday night game when he when he blew the save, he hadn't pitched in a week. So Girardi brings him in. He can't even get through the inning. He's still throwing 99 miles an hour, but he cannot locate and he's getting hit. That's the thing. It's like, why is his 99 mile an hour fastball getting hit when his 99 mile an hour fastball from three weeks ago wasn't getting hit? What's the difference? Well, rotator cuff inflammation on the disabled list it did not shock me at all because like we we talked about he has not looked right since that 33 pitch save in boston three weeks ago
2: yeah and if you listen to the whispers of the offseason and talking about how he was used in chicago and the cubs i mean there was there was talk about this as well in at the end of the postseason and how you know potentially there was some arm issues with chapman and maybe, maybe this is stemming back to then, you know, I mean, maybe it is because he did have issues at that point. There were whispers about it. Usually when there's smoke, there's fire. And, uh, you know, there, there may have been some discomfort at some point with him and it flared up again. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's a, maybe a 99 mile an hour fastball when his shoulder is good, has a lot more movement than, than it does when his shoulder is not good. You can get, uh, you know, better spin rate on the ball. I don't know but you know, this is a, this is a guy that they're going to need later in the season. They have, they have the people to back them up. Um, right now, Batantis is laughing all the way to the closer role in the ninth inning and saying, Oh, I guess you need me now. And, um, you think
1: he's paying a visit to Randy Levine's office? Oh yeah,
2: no doubt. No doubt about it. He might sign a ball for him too. Just as a, as a little, um, you know, up yours. The, uh, the fact that that they have Batantis, i think makes this easier for for the yankees and for for cashman and Girardi to to put him on the shelf because if this yankee team does continue to be the real team that we think it is at this point in the season they're obviously going to need him later in the year so now is the time to get him healthy and ready to go for the the stretch and what they they're going to no baseball activities for two weeks so they're thinking minimum four weeks he's going to be out and you know we'll see what happens
1: he tried to pitch through it. He was trying to get treatment and kind of just hoping it would go away. It didn't go away. Yeah, at least a month. And I, I've, I was reading things that obviously everybody's roca- rotator cuff injury is different, but it's a month to two month injury. Is this what Britain has for, for Baltimore? Uh,
2: no. I thought I thought it was a little bit different, but I, I'm not. But they're 100% both shoulder sure. issues. Yeah,
1: but I mean it. I know everyone's saying, oh, well, we've got Batansis to be the closer for 10 days. It's going to be a hell of a lot longer than 10 days.
2: Yeah, because it was retroactive also. So I think, so th- there's, there's something interesting about the injuries that I, there's, I think a lot of the talk radio shows have been, ta- have been really keying on these injuries. And John Sterling, every single time, like almost to an annoyance, somebody big gets, gets hurt in baseball every single day. He says it every single broadcast. We're like, okay, John, we get it. Someone gets hurt. We understand. They go on the DL. But you know, I think one of the interesting things in this day and age, because there are, the medical technology is so good, and they can and they could take such better pictures and see you know what's going on a lot better, that there's so many different severities of an injury that if they see the beginnings of of something, they'll shelf a guy. Whereas back in the day, they didn't see the severity, so there weren't you know grade one, two, three, four of a of a strain or whatever, so they would just wait until it was. Really hurt, and then they would shelf a guy. So I feel right. like that's why we're seeing more injuries because they're being more preventative and they could catch things earlier, so that they don't get to that point where you know it becomes a you know, even longer injury. And I, I think that's culminating with a lot of these why we're seeing a lot of these guys on the DL at the, at this point.
1: Chapman would have waited until he couldn't lift his arm out of yeah, bed. I think to so too. Go on the DL. Yeah, yeah and in, I love that about him. Or
2: Honestly, I love that about him. I, I think he is that guy who who will try to go out there. I mean, he takes a lot of pride in his in his physical uh, abilities and you know, the, way that he, um, the way that he trains and gets himself ready for the game. So he also did talk about that he had a very similar injury type back in 2012 when he was with and the Reds. H-
1: and how long was he out? I didn't see that.
2: Uh, yeah, I didn't see how long he was out, but he, he said he battled something very similar, and obviously he came back from that. So that's, I think that's the, the overwhelming um, you know, news you want to take from that, that he has done it and come through and come back and been fine.
1: What did you think of Chad Green on the first game on Sunday?
2: I thought he pitched well. I thought he pitched very well.
1: He saved the Yankees' ass in that first game because Severino had nothing, gets pulled in the third inning, and the the, uh, Astros have bases loaded with one out, and you're like, well, shit. I mean, our bullpen's going to be fried for game two, and the Yankees are probably going to lose this game. Chad Green gets the huge double play and and gets them into the seventh inning. I, I think he's earned himself a spot on this roster going forward.
2: Oh there's no doubt and he's also talked about the fact that he when he had that injury it took him longer to get back from uh to feeling 100% and you know at this point it looks like the guy is feeling you know all sorts of good and and is is really executing pitches so I think you're right I think he's definitely especially with Severino I mean that's something that we need to talk about this is another outing another big outing where Severino has looked bad again and you know I think it's boiling down to
1: what's the first one I we, mean a week ago he Matched Lester pitch for pitch.
2: Yeah. But before that, he's also gone into the fifth inning and, and he's, 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 you know, let up those late home runs and not be able to finish games. That's happened two times. This is a guy that, that still has to complete these games. And in big situations when he doesn't have that location and it seems like he's, ha- he's, it's, it's happening more often than not. Cause he was walking more guys. What do you walk? Two, three guys this last one. He doesn't walk guys. Yeah, and he and was
1: falling behind every every hitter. Every hitter was a three-two count. He was falling behind two and zero. Oh, so yeah, he had he had absolutely nothing. And I thought it's interesting how Girardi went pulled him early in that game when we saw a similar situation in Cincinnati with Sabathia struggling, and Girardi let him go into the sixth inning. Well, isn't that all about your, your confidence in the guy and the way that well, it's you? It's what you've done. For, it's not what it's not what you'll do. It's what you've done for me.
2: Yes, that's right. And that's, and that's, he's got the confidence that CC will bounce back. And, you know, I'm sure there's little keys that they talk about in the dugout and CC's like, yeah, i just missed this one. Just missed that one. I still got it. I'm fine. So I don't know. You know, there's obviously a veteran thing there too. I think he would have been pulled if he was a different type, a different player.
1: We knew Severino is, is going to go through these struggles and maybe I'm just, I'm, I'm easier on him because he's essentially a rookie.
2: Yes, he is. And this is a guy that was, regu- you know, was, was put in the bullpen because of his struggle. So if we're looking at what happened from last year, he's been a hell of a lot better. If we're looking at what he was expectations going into last year, we're still waiting for that guy to be the consistent, you know, top of the rotation guy. I mean, he, he shows it a la Pineda. He shows it. These guys are showing these things, but they're also extremely frustrating because he's becoming a guy who comes out, dominates. Then all of a sudden he doesn't have it. Like, where's, where's the, you're talking about Headley in the in-between. Where's the in-between? Where's the guy that could battle through six innings? Where's the guy who can... Look,
1: he's you know, got to learn how to do that.
2: And his pitch count got very high in the second inning. I think he had like 50 pitches.
1: Yeah. Oh, he was terrible. So, but I think that's something that as, as you mature as a pitcher... I mean, Severino's 24 years old. Right. As you mature as a pitcher, you learn how to uh, compete when you have nothing on the mound. Yeah, you learn how to pitch instead of throw. And that's yeah. what he's got to do. He's learning on the job, which is fine. But I think it just goes back to the fact that this Yankees rotation is still their Achilles heel.
2: Absolutely. There's no no doubt about it. The offense has proven that they're going to score runs. The bullpen we know is going to be a, a good bullpen, especially at the end. You know, I'll, Of course, if Chapman comes back healthy. But you're right. The, the Achilles heel
1: is 100%, no doubt, the starting rotation. And the guys that we thought we could count on going into Sunday, wouldn't you say Tanaka and Severino, your two number one and number two pitchers going into that game, we're prime, we have the pitching edge, we're going to sweep this doubleheader. Severino gives him nothing. The Yankees come back. Their offense has an emotional win on the first game. Mm-hmm. We've got the freaking Derek Jeter ceremonies and everyone is riding high with emotion. Tanaka goes out there and shits on the mound. Six runs in the first inning. Grand slam to Bregman. I mean, there's he ripped the soul and guts out of every Yankee fan in that ballpark. It was I, I tweeted from Bronx
2: Pinstripes saying it was an unacceptable failure. And to me, that's exactly what it was. This is a guy who is the, the number one guy paid a lot of money to come out and be the if, if uh, you know, I, I know the freaking debate about the ace and the number one all this crap. But whatever he is, he is the number one guy. There's no question about that. And he's the guy that needs to be the stable veteran pitcher, the guy that can come in and, you know, keep you in the game no matter what. That, that's the bare minimum. And when you come out on an emotional day like this after the ceremony, the stadium is just buzzing and packed to the brim. And you do what I mean, that was the biggest egg laid the biggest egg I have seen in a long time. It was awful. You get Bregman coming out there wearing number two, hitting a grand (laughs) slam. I mean, come on, bro. That's embarrassing. He should be embarrassed. Like, don't show your face in New York. Embarrassed.
1: Nutless. That was a nutless performance by by Tanaka. I but mean, you don't
2: even need that. I mean, why do you even? It's not even like a high pressure situation at that point. Like, just how about you just keep the ball down in the zone, and groove through some, you know, the first inning. Get through the first inning for God's sakes. After that emotional thing, that place would have been crazy if he goes one two three or gets out with no runs. I mean, it would have gone nuts. That
1: is, I think that that is kind of a pressure situation. You've got you've, you're you're primed to sweep the doubleheader. And, and feel good about yourselves that you split a four-game series with the best team in the American League. You've got Sunday Night Baseball. You just had the Derek Jeter ceremonies. 50,000 people in that stadium. I think there is pressure in that situation, and maybe it's a reason why Tanaka fell on his face.
2: Yeah, I mean, now that you're saying it, maybe it is. It's, it's a different type of pressure, I guess. There was a, a lot of pressure to live up to the Derek Jeter expectation of winning that game and making sure that you come out in a clutch situation. Uh, not, not that it was a real close clutch situation. We're talking about a game, uh, a game in May, but with everything that was surrounding it, you know, there was different pressures there. So I don't know, man, but it was all I know is that it was terrible. It was, it, it was embarrassing watching Alex Bregman run around the bases after hitting a grand slam on a dare Jeter day, wearing number two.
1: It just goes back to the fact that I have zero confidence in Tanaka. I, I, I know his stats at the end of the year will probably look really good, but I still, when he takes the mound, I do not feel confident. I feel like he's just like any of the other five pitchers that the Yankees have going out there.
2: Well, he certainly hasn't shown it this year. And and you know, if we're talking about we've circled around this opt-out clause and everything and I was uh, you know, we had this debate in the offseason, is he going to opt out? Is he not? And if he keeps throwing you know, if he keeps throwing like this, he's well, not
1: opting out. This is this is an extreme. I, I mean, understand
2: this is an extreme, but if he if he starts show if he continues to show that he's not the guy, you know he's making a lot of money, whether he whether he stays in contract <laughs> or doesn't. So he's gonna. This is this. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. I think maybe there's some pressure there for him, saying that hey, you know if I have if I put, this if,
1: is essentially a contract year. It is a contract year. If he puts together a
2: very good year, he's going to be the number one pitcher on the open market, bar none, hands down. That's the that's just what it's going to be. And maybe that's maybe that's getting to him.
1: Possibly before we get into mailbags, a couple of other news updates, Tyler Austin, finally a Tyler Austin news update. Shane Hennigan, who we've had on this podcast, tweeted that Tyler will begin rehab games in high a Tampa at the end of this week. That's good news. If you're not a fan of Chris Carter, which I think everybody listening is not a fan of Chris Carter. Also more first base kind of updates. Seems like the timetable on Greg bird has gone from 10 days and then rehab to he's out indefinitely his foot's not really getting better. I'm a little bit concerned. <laughs> yeah, and
2: uh, I, I, I have We have in the notes Scott's conspiracy about Greg Bird, and it's not so much a conspiracy as it is. There was a video from last night when, from I think the Players Tribune put it out of uh, Jeter warming up. I don't know if anybody else caught this. I sent it to you this morning, so I know you haven't had a chance to really look at it. But dissect it later in the day, and and if everybody else is listening, check it out and let me know what you're thinking. But there's a, a video of him get warming up with the with like the varsity jacket on that they wear those starter jackets. Uh, Jeter warming up before the first pitch, just getting his arm loose. So he doesn't. He says, "I'm not embarrassing myself out on that. You know, throwing out the first pitch." And Greg Bird walks by, and he gives like this like little kid like eye roll at Jeter, and then walks by like very awkwardly, like super awkward. I had to watch it like three or four times to see what was going on there because it was like he was a little leaguer walking by Jeter. Like the guy had zero confidence. Like I'm not a big leaguer at all. It was so weird to me. So I don't know what's going on with Greg Bird. I, he obviously has got nothing going on as far as he's zero confidence. He's embarrassed in his play. Walking by Derek Jeter, like, I can't even look at you. I'm, I'm so terrible and I'm still hurt. I don't know. He wasn't, I he wasn't I love, limping though.
1: I love a conspiracy as, as much as the next guy. I watched this video and I did not see what you're talking about.
2: You watched it not knowing what I was talking about. You need to go back and look.
1: Key right. in on this
2: key. in. it's at the very end of the video. It's very strange.
1: I just, the thing I noticed about the video was that it seemed like chaos, chaos down there. Everyone's just sort of walking around with bats in their hands, taking swings.
2: Yeah. I think it was right before the game. So they're all just like June's everybody had a, a pot of coffee and they're ready to go. <laughs> all
1: right. First mailbag question. It's actually not really a question as much as a, a statement from Nino. Hey guys, I recently started listening to this podcast and am enjoying it today. Uh, Today, you were discussing how the pitch speeds have been slightly higher this year compared to previous years. I believe that is because they are measuring the speed differently this year. Now, speeds are based on maximum velocity, usually at the release of the pitch, whereas they used to be measured about 55 feet from home plate. As a result, the speeds are measured slightly higher than previous years. Just a thought you guys would like to know. That is absolutely true. StatCast is now measuring the pitch velocities, and it's right out of the hand instead of, like you said, 55 feet from home plate. I, I mean, intuitively, I would think, wouldn't you rather know how fast the pitch is going closer to the plate? Isn't that more? Isn't that more relevant? But I don't know because uh, no matter what, you have only a finite number of seconds to react to the pitch. So, it doesn't really matter if you're measuring it two feet out of the hand or fifty feet out of the hand. You have a one point five seconds to react. So, yeah, but about, you're,
2: so. you're going to get a. I mean, you're going to get a, a higher reading off of the gun I think when you're doing it off the hand so that's probably why they're doing it but if you go if you look at the stadium too and I, I walked around when I was there uh the, the last time I was there and I was walking around and there are radar guns everywhere on the sides that I, first I thought they were cameras then I'm looking at them again they look they're longer you know like a radar gun is and there's a ton of them and I don't know if StatCast is just putting these all around every stadium but um there are a lot of them so they're getting all sorts of measurements from from different areas and different but they're gonna they're gonna promote the maximum stuff I mean numbers are sexy. So they want high numbers. Statcast.
1: Statcast is now measuring the beer intake of everybody in the stadium. That's what all those cameras are.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. Bronx <laughs> Brewery loves that.
1: All right, what do we have next?
2: The next is from Zach. He said, thoughts on this stat. With Chris Bryant's hit batters, I'm sorry, with Chris Bryant's hit batters are now four for 10 versus Dellen Batanza's knuckleball, knuckle curve this year. He only gave up 22 hits on it all last season. Hopefully it's not a sign of things to come.
1: I think this is relevant um, in the sense that now Betances is the closer, and I think people have PTSD of Betances closing in September.
2: Yeah, and people don't have a lot of good memories about this. They're, he's just a he's a, he's become a guy where he puts guys on, and, and then he gets out of this trouble sometimes. So let's not put the guys on, and I think that's part of what this what Zach's talking about. You know, getting guys that's
1: an easy on. Betances though is in a spot. To really stick it to the Yankees no doubt say Chapman's out for a month and a half and Betancis is a lockdown closer for that time He can go into arbitration next year and be like hey guys Guess what? I am a closer. Give me nine million bucks or or else. I'm gonna I don't know uh, Make a fit or, or I'm going hold pout. out or do whatever <laughs> Yeah, so I think this is a crucial time for Betancis
2: well yeah, he's gotten screwed on pretty much every contract he's ever signed. So this is he's got to continue to show that he is a dominant back of the uh, back of the uh bullpen guy and he is going to have an extended period of time to close. So, you know, this is uh not only an audition for his contract, but I think an audition for other teams at some point because, you know, with the Chapman contract, it's probably more likely that's going to be the case.
1: Yeah. Next question is from Ryan and he says, David Cohn during a loss a while back to the Orioles talked about the use of relievers during games. He mentioned the leverage index or the most pivotal point in games. Now, I don't necessarily see the need for every statistic, but there does seem to be validity in putting your best pitchers like Batances in the game when the situation is most critical. For instance, Girardi should go to the good guys in the bullpen if a starter struggles in the sixth or the seventh. But Joe usually goes to someone like Mitchell or Holder. Do you think that Girardi would ever consider changing his approach or still only put Batantis or Clippard in when it's the sixth or excuse me, the seventh or the eighth, regardless of the situation? I feel like this was the number one talked about topic in last year's postseason.
2: Yeah. And I think we've already touched on this, too, in the in the in the sense that I don't think it's it's always going to be Batantis or Chapman or Clippard. But I think the guy that you're going to see do that is Warren. Uh, Girardi has already done that. Girardi is already using Warren as kind of his Swiss army knife. Warren is his guy that he feels a hundred percent comfortable with, has pitched very well this year and will go in at any point to, you know, to stifle uh, a you know a, a rally that's happening with the other team, or if he knows who's coming up, I think he f- has a lot of confidence in Adam Warren to go in and, and put the fire out.
1: I thought uh, Girardi did something in Pittsburgh a few weeks ago. He brought Batansis in, in the seventh inning of a game that the Yankees uh, – it was the Saturday game. The Yankees were – it was they were letting it slip from their hands. And he brought Batanzas in in the seventh inning with runners on base and he got out of it. And then Carter hit that big home run to extend the lead I think. But I I thought that was – that showed some evolution from Girardi. He was – he last year would have gone to Brian Mitchell or Jonathan Holder just because I need Batanzas for the eighth inning if we're leading. I need Chapman for the ninth inning if we're leading. He didn't do that. So – I think Girardi in certain spots is adapting.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that's a, that's a perfect opportunity. And it's a good example of when he brought in a guy, when he knew the situation was crucial to the game to win or lose that game. And he brought in his, his best pitcher at the, at the moment. And that's, and it worked. So the, um, there is an evolution, but I, I think Batantis, obviously now he's not going to be that guy, but no. look for Adam Warren, maybe Clippard. I See, I don't I don't see Clippert as that guy either, though. I don't see Clippert as a, a fire extinguisher. I do see no, Warren well, as that guy, and I think he's got the you, confidence.
1: To be a fire extinguisher, don't you need to be sort of the lockdown Batantis slash Miller type where, I mean, you can't really be a, a fire extinguisher if your name is Jonathan Holder or Adam Warren because... You're just the next guy to come in in that sense.
2: Well, no, I don't think Warren is that guy. I think Warren is has a much bigger role in this bullpen because of the confidence in Joe Girardi. I think he is the fire extinguisher in Girardi's mind, where he can go in and have confidence that that Warren can get them out of a, out of a situation, no matter what the situation, no matter what the pressure. I think I think Warren is that guy.
1: If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can tweet us at Yankees Podcast. My handle is at Andrew underscore Rotondi. Scotts is at Scott Reinen. Remember to submit mailbag questions at bronxpinstripes.com slash podcast and call the voicemail line at six four six four eight zero zero three four two. Scott, people enjoyed that little touch at the end of the last week's podcast, and we definitely want to keep it going for the rest of the season.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We got a bunch of calls this week, so we're gonna we're definitely gonna take you out there. I hope everybody liked my uh, little Costanza Seinfeld input in there. You know, we got to throw some Seinfeld stuff in as as much as we possibly
1: can. <laughs> I noticed a lot of people after Tanaka's meltdown wanted that line. And I may or may not have called as well. So enjoy these voicemails, and we'll talk to you guys in a few days. Believe it or not, George, is not at home? Please leave a
3: message at the beep. I must be out before I pick
2: up the phone.
3: Where could I be? <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm not home. This is Scott in Ottawa. I have a trade proposal. I want to trade Chris Carter to this podcast for the British lady who does the voicemail message. Any objections? Why do we continue to give Chris Carter at-bat? Play Holiday at first, throw Hicks at DH. This is ridiculous. Hey, this is Joey in Laramie, Wyoming. Love it podcast. Uh, One thing I want you people, you fans, to watch out for Is Gary Sanchez behind the plate? I worry about his throwing hand. He doesn't protect it. But otherwise, Chris Carter's got to go. Go Yankees! (laughs) Can we talk about Michael Panetta's hairline? (laughs) It is horrible. It took 10 years off my life, but you know what? We did it. We were able to sweep the defending world champions. We're gonna go into Cincinnati. Another homecoming for Rogus Chapman. And we're gonna take two from them as well. I will say this, the strike zone was a disgrace. ESPN is awful at their market. I mean, they almost had a heart attack over a play that was almost made. I think some nice guy by Javi Baez on the grounder that he couldn't even get the guy out of. But nonetheless, the you know, the bandwagon riding of the Cubs will continue just as it uh, did from last year, just as it did from 2015, but you know what? As Andrew Markson put out in a terrific article um, this morning, you know, we know what the Cubs are made of because they showed it last October. This was more of a statement for the Yankees. And if they don't take two from Cincinnati, then so be it. Uh, still a great trip. Still a great win. Follow your boy on Twitter at MCW underscore GSN. This is WFAN legend Mike from New Haven, by the way. Over and out. Starlin, just what I think that you couldn't be any dumber. You go and do something like this and totally redeem yourself. Paying this guy $22 million. He's supposed to be a center fielder, supposed to be a speedster. Can't score from second with two outs on a single. Do you play high school baseball? Because I know I always score with two outs from second on a single. Disgraceful. I agree with sending Ellsbury home there. You have to. But was it just me, or did he look really slow running the bear? I mean, he didn't get a double on his hit, which I thought he should have. And then he got nailed at home. So Ellsbury dropping off a little bit. Maybe we should trade him. Man, tough tough call at the end. You have to send Ellsbury. Very, very close play. But you got to tie it up.
0: Go Yankees. Keep it
3: up, boys. I got cut off because my
1: dad called me to pitch about Tanaka. How do you go out there and honor Derek Jeter, one of the greatest players in Yankees history, and you go out there as a pitcher and give up six fucking runs? You have to have no nuts. He is nutless, gutless
3: motherfucker. That's it. Guys, first time, long time here. I just want to know what the hell Tanaka is doing. Did he, like, care? Why He's throwing 88-mile-an-hour fastballs up there. And then why can't we hit a goddamn breaking ball? Everybody's swinging for the goddamn fences. These guys are just throwing 91-mile-an-hour cutters up there, and we keep swinging and absolutely fanning on them. Had a nice little comeback at the end, but then... I mean, we can't score eight runs every ninth inning, for crying out loud.
0: You know what Aaron Judge is like?
3: Aaron Judge is like that your favorite indie band that you liked when no one knew about the band but you had their album and you would tell people you gotta listen to this band i love them and all of a sudden they go on saturday night live and now everyone loves them they love their hit and now you're a little jaded because it used to be just your band and i watched aaron judge in the minor leagues the last two years and i would tell everyone that i knew this guy aaron judge Going to be my favorite player. I love him. And no one knew. No one really cared. They were just, you know, they liked the 6'8 thing. And now everyone loves Aaron Judge. He's a favorite player on ESPN. Aaron Boone loves him. Everyone around MLB network loves him.
0: I'm a little jaded
3: I don't want to share him. I want him to be my player and not everyone else's favorite player.